the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. We're going to be, this is a topical sermon. We're going to be talking about baptism today. So I'm going to be all over the place. And uh, I'll try to, well, I'll try. For the first few minutes, I'll try to, to slow, be slow enough to, where, to have you guys turn. But more than likely, I'll start speeding up and Hopefully everything, the verses behind, or that I'm reading from will be displayed on the monitors behind me. Uh, but this is an important subject, um, and it has to do with baptism. And so the title of my sermon this morning is, Why Do We Call Ourselves Baptists? Why do we call ourselves Baptists? And uh, I, I think it's an important question to ask ourselves. And, uh, and the reason is, is in, especially in our culture where we live, you say you're a Baptist, and there's an automatic connotation that comes just with the word, right? Because 400 years later, after Baptists began to appear in church history, right, there's all kinds of flavors of Baptists. There's Baptists that are protesting soldiers' funerals, for crying out loud. I went to the Southern Baptist Convention, and the Baptists were out there protesting us as Baptists, right? All different flavors, all different things. So why do we call ourselves Baptists if it's something that's it uh, has a, a, sometimes a negative connotation. Why? And I want to tell you this morning, I'm proud to be a Baptist. We stand on the soldier, shoulders of uh, uh, godly men and women who have gone before us and have stood through persecution. Um, uh, what, they, they, what they stood up for, what they saw in, in Scripture to be true and to be revealed by the, by the pages of inspired Scripture and so I think it's something that uh, b- being called a Baptist is a, it's a word that we can redeem. We can, we can show people what it means to be a Baptist, kind of like having a community barbecue, not charging a dime for it. Those are the ways that we can redeem the word Baptist, to show the love of Christ to others and to show that um, whatever the connotation they might have is in the word Baptist is not truly what a Baptist means according to scripture and so understanding the importance of believers baptism is ultimately what we're getting at today we call ourselves baptists because it's about believers baptism some people would uh uh, would say that we try to associate ourselves with john the baptist but it's actually something that's a a denomination a, a belief system that's come out of church history and i hope to show that to you today but the reason why it's important is because of christ's Greatest command as Matthew's um, closing up his his record of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter twenty eight, he records Jesus as saying these things: the Great Commission, and the the wonderful, beautiful placard that Jim and Sue purchased for the church has the the globe there, and it has this passage of scripture below uh, below. And if there's any children that would like to go to Sunday school, they can kind of squirt out to the back, and Corey's there to receive them. Her and um, I think everyone's staying staying up here today, so it'll be good. Thank you. Um, but the, the, that Great Commission verse is below that on that placard, and this is this is uh, the the heart of being a Baptist. This Great Commission um, passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verses sixteen. He has the eleven disciples. And they traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I like that. I think we need to pause there. We see these 11 disciples. We have the resurrected Lord and Savior, and yet they're doubting, right? And so he, 
he says to them to reassure them. This is what he tells them. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. See, the authority of God has been given to Jesus, God in the flesh. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' great commandment, his great commission commandment to the disciples and ultimately to his church is to go into all the nations and make disciples. And what are we to do with these disciples? Baptize them in the name of the Father, our triune God, singular name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not only are we to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, to to call people to repentance and believe and trust in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is in, in the means in which God has made a way for us to become one of his children. We proclaim that gospel message. We make disciples and we call them to be baptized. And then ultimately, we don't just leave them. We're not to leave them withering on the vine, but we're to disciple them to grow them up in the faith. Teaching them in verse 20, to observe everything I've commanded you. And I remember, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he reassures his disciples and ultimately to us, all authority has been given to him and this is what I want you to do, church. Go and make disciples in all nations and in doing so, baptize them and disciple them. That's the great commission. That's what we stand here in 2021, uh, on this street, at this, right now, at this time, to proclaim the gospel, to be uh, the, God's representatives as his church, as Christ's church in this community, to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, and to call people to repentance and belief, to be baptized and be discipled. And that's why I'm here. Because if this is just a social club, then... I'd rather be at the golf course. I'm, t- I'm sorry. But this is, this is what is of utmost importance. It's what I determined over almost 20 years ago now. This is what the utmost important thing of this life is all about is this, this matter of the gospel and proclaiming it to the nations because it is a life. It's a matter of, li- of eternal life or eternal death or in- eternal judgment. And so that is why we're here. That is what we're doing. That is why we devoted a significant amount of money to to put a baptistry in this sanctuary to to be able to fulfill what god has commanded his church to do the two ordinances he's given his church are the lord's supper and baptism and now we can do that more efficiently and effectively and hopefully in a christ-honoring way in doing this and having this baptismal created so that's why we're doing it and again, why do we call ourselves Baptists? I think we need to take some time. This might turn into a history lesson of some sorts, but we need to take some time to examine our roots of being a Baptist. What does that mean? What is that all about? And we are associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. And the Southern Baptist Convention, according to Pew Research, is the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. It has over 14 million members. Over 46,000 churches are under the umbrella of the Southern Baptist Convention. 
and most would call it a denomination, but we are very unique in our denomination in the fact that we are not controlled by a larger hierarchy of people above us, so that every church is given the authority to govern themselves. And so although we're considered the largest, largest Protestant Baptist denomination, or largest Protestant denomination, we're very unique in the fact that every church exercises its own authority within the church. There's nobody above this, outside of this church that can call or fire me to be a pastor, right? You guys have to fire me if you want to fire me. No one from outside the church is going to do it or to call a pastor. You guys decide. You guys decide what is done with the funds that are given. Uh, this is congregational-led church. So it's very unique in that. But we cooperate with other like-minded churches that have uh, under uh, have agreed to what we call the, the Baptist faith and message. It's the confession of the Southern Baptist Confession uh, Convention, essentially. And in order to be Come part of the, the greater convention, you have to, the church has to agree to the tenets of the faith that are found there. And so they're like-minded churches, but it gives us the opportunity to, to come alongside, especially in a church in our situation where we don't have a lot of people, but, but yet God's commanded us to go to every nation. How can we do that when there's only just a few of us? Well, we can cooperate with other like-minded churches and uh, contribute all of our funds together to send missionaries out to all the nations. It's a spectacular thing. It's a wonderful thing to be able to cooperate with churches that are similar in our, in our belief system, to come together and to, to fulfill the Great Commission through our International Missions Board who sends missionaries throughout the world, through our North American Mission Board which sends church planners to North America to fulfill those parts and then we are to take care of Idaho Falls, Right? And we support Scott Plath up north, who covers just outside of our region. We're trying to fulfill the Great Commission in doing so when we contribute to those things. So what I want to have you guys focus on, though, is the fact that this is, it says the, the and it's Southern Baptist Convention is considered the largest Protestant denomination. Protestant denomination. Our roots stem from the Protestant Reformation in church history. The Protestant Reformation occurred in the 16th and 17th century, mostly. There was forerunners of the Reformation before church history that built the foundation for the Reformation to happen. But this was found in a time where the Catholic Church had had all power, had all authority, both in ecclesiastical matters, but also civil and militarily. They had great power um, after the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, the, uh, Christianity in, the, in 300 uh, A.D. became the official religion of the Roman uh, Empire through Constantine. And then in the 5th century, the Roman Empire fell, and so there was this power vacuum. Who was left standing to assume all this power was the Catholic Church. And in the Catholic Church, as you see church history, they begin to push aside the the doctrines and tenets of the faith that are found in Scripture, and they begin to assume more authority and power in, in a person, and what they call the Pope, and that ultimately they, it got to the point where the Pope was the vicar on earth that stand, stood in the, in the, I get a little upset about this as I talk about it, stood in the, the ruling seat of Christ and, and, and declared those things. And so they, they departed greatly from the doctrines and the tenets of the faith that is found in scripture and in the 16th and 17th century 
God uh, providentially began to use men to um, call the, the church to reform, to call them back to the original tenets of the faith. And obviously it didn't work, and so there's this, this whole line of, of, of church history that's called the Protestant church. They protested the Catholic church. And the men like John Calvin and John Knox who established Presbyterianism and the, the man who's credited for lighting off the Reformation, Martin Luther, uh, he was a, a Catholic monk who got uh, just fed up with these different heretical teachings called indulgences that the Catholic Church was doing, getting people's money to build St. Peter's Basilica. Um, Basilica. That's, that, th- he got fed up and he, he nailed 95 theses, uh, complaints against the Catholic Church, against, uh, to the uh, church door in, in, uh, in Germany, in Wittenberg, and um, began what is called the Protestant Reformation when people began to stand for what God... Uh, revealed to us and inspired scripture and not what men and religion uh, insisted God was doing. And so that, that called, caused the, the Protestant Reformation. And so John uh, Calvin was in uh, Switzerland. Uh, Martin Luther was in Germany. And there was God was also using men in, in England as well. William Tyndale during this time, he, he came to the knowledge that, that God's people needed to have God's word in their own hand. And so under great duress, he, he translated um, the, English, or the Bible into English using the Greek manuscripts that he had. He ultimately ended up going to the stake and being burned for it, or hung first, and then they re, re-dug up his, his body and then burned it at the stake years later because the Catholic Church was so mad that they, he did this. He put, at the expense of his own life, put God's word in began to put God's word in the people's hand because up until then, the, the Bible was in Latin. And only those that were educated in the Catholic Church and the monasteries uh, were able to read it. And so he, he did that. And so God used this time to, to begin to separate the error of the Catholic Church versus what was found in God's word. And the Reformation can be wrapped up in these five solas. These are the five solas of the Reformation. This is what the Reformation was all about calling the Catholic Church to return to sola scriptura. The sola means alone. Return to scripture alone. God's authority on earth is God's scripture, his inspired word. Scripture alone. And in that scripture, in his revealed inspired word, we, found the, we find the, the, his plan of salvation found in Christ alone. Right? Christ is the only one, the only mediator in which man can be reconciled to God. Solus Christus. Salvation is found in Scripture alone, through, the, through our Lord and Savior Christ alone. And sola gratia is gracial, grace alone. It is God's unmerited gift extended to us. It's not something that we earn. And religion comes in and says, you must do these things to earn it. And Scripture declares it is through God's grace, unmerited Love and favor alone. And we access his grace, his unmerited love, through faith alone. The gospel message is sola fide. It's by faith alone. We don't do anything to earn it. We don't get baptized to earn salvation. We, by faith, trust and believe the gospel call, the historical account that Jesus died in your place on the cross. He went 
took your penalty upon himself when he went to the cross. And God poured out his wrath upon him for the sin, for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And we, as we gone through, have gone through the Gospel of John, we saw how many times John recorded Jesus saying, if you believe, if you trust in my accomplished work, you will have eternal life. Whosoever believes, right? It's by faith alone. And ultimately, it's a soli dea gloria, deo gloria, which is uh, for God's glory alone. So the Reformation can be wrapped up in the, the five solas there. And we can look at this and say, yes, this is what we are to do. We are to use God's scripture alone. I'm, I'm a pastor. I, I've been given uh, the, the amazing blessing to be a pastor of a local New Testament church, but I have no more authority than any of you. I'm just gifted uniquely, hopefully. <laughs> right? And all of us are gifted differently. God's spiritually gifting is, is to, to create the body and a mature body to, to be used for his glory in this, on this earth, on his creation. But I have no authority. My job is to point people to Jesus. That's my job. It's through God's scripture alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, for the glory of God alone. And these are the roots that the Southern Baptists line has come out of in the protestant Re uh, reformation was happening in england i mentioned william tyndale but there was also uh england is pretty unique in the re reformed or protestant reformation era because there was a a king of england henry the eighth he ruled from 1509 to 1547 so right in that time of the protestant reformation was beginning um he uh uh, went to the Pope, Pope Clement VII, and asked for an annulment of his marriage to his, his wife. And the Pope denied him. And so the king got upset. And he began to, to start uh, to whittle England away from the power of Catholicism. And ultimately the Anglican Church, the Church of England, came to be the, the, the church, the state church of England. And if you look at the belief systems of, of the Anglican Church, it's this weird mixture of Catholicism with, the, with some tenets and arguments of the Reformation. The writings of John Calvin and Martin Luther are kind of intermixed, intermixed in all of that. And so obviously this spawned the need for more reform even in the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And so reformers within the Anglican Church began to speak out against the errors and the injustices that they saw in the Anglican Church. And we now call them Puritans, the desire to purify the Anglican church. And they begin to stand up and call the church to repentance and say, return back to scripture in Christ alone and grace alone and faith alone. And over time, as the Puritans began to observe that nothing was changing in the Anglican church, that it indeed was just the king's means of which he can control, have even more power over the people, there's a, a sect of the Puritans that were called the separatists who said, no more are we going to try to purify the church. We're going to separate ourselves from the Anglican church. And so they begin to meet independently of one another. And they, because of the works of, like William Tyndale, they be, begin to have the Bible for themselves. And they begin to see 
what God has revealed in his word and they begin to see the, the differences that they, they saw in the Anglican church versus what was in scripture. And these separatists underwent great um, persecution for standing against Anglicanism and Catholicism. This presentation that I'm giving you this morning is, is a very bloodless presentation. There's a lot of blood that was spilled over these, these, the tenets of the faith here. These separatists desired to, to be completely separate of the, of the state. They wanted to worship independently and freely as they saw what the Bible, God had revealed in the scriptures. And so ultimately, these separatist Puritans spent some time in Holland, and ultimately, we now call them the pilgrims who came over to New England and established the colonies to flee the persecution that they were enduring. And um, during this time, as this was being played out, these Puritans, the, these people who had God's word, began to see the, the Puritans were heavily influenced by John Calvin. Most, I mean, I'm talking in broad generalizations, right? There's sex and different things. But the majority of the Puritans were heavily influenced by John Calvin. But, uh, and so John Calvin was a, is a kind of the father of Presbyterianism, which is a Protestant faith that believes in grace alone, faith alone, all those things. But they held on him, and Martin Luther held on to a couple things from the Catholic Church, and one of them was baby baptism. They held to the fact that since in the Old Testament, uh, Jewish babies were called to be circumcised. The circumcision was the, the sign of the covenant, of the, old, of the Mosaic covenant. And they were, that was to happen on the eighth, after eight days after the child was to be born. And so they held on to baby baptism. Even though they had faith alone, the, the salvation right, People begin to see that, well, in Scripture, we don't see babies being baptized. We see believers being baptized. And so they didn't feel like the Presbyterians or the Lutherans went far enough in separating from the teachings of the Catholic Church because they said just because it happens in the Old Testament doesn't mean it necessarily has to happen in the New Testament. The sign of the New Testament is baptism. It's a sign. It's not an effectual, graceful, gracious work it's a sign, a token of the new covenant that's found in Christ's shed blood. I know this is a lot. I hope you're getting something from it. This is uh, a lot of years of church history condensed down into 20 minutes, so it's kind of like a fire hose. I apologize. Um, but they, they didn't see them going enough. So about 1644, you begin to see these people who uh, were Puritan of the Puritan faith protesting Anglican, Ang Anglicanism. I, sh I told myself not to use that word because it's too, way too many symbol, syllables. Begin to protest it, and, uh, and they said, no, you guys aren't going far enough. And so they said, we need to be baptized. Once you hear the, when we see in Scripture, as you hear the, the gospel message, you receive it and you believe it. And God's, Christ's first commandment to those who are his disciples is to be baptized. And so you're supposed to be baptized after you have personally received Christ as your Savior. And so they underwent persecution, not only from the Anglicans, but also the Puritans who held to baby baptism. So these Baptists, they were called Anabaptists. That was a bad word. Right? It was a negative connotation. Oh, you're the rebaptizers. You're getting rebaptized. And uh, they underwent persecution from the Anglicans and from those. And so these Baptists begin to, to show up in, in England. Um, John Clark, John Gill, others who said, 
Look, if we're truly reforming, if it's truly Scripture alone, then we, we don't see baby baptism in the New Testament. And ultimately, these Baptists followed the Puritans over to New England. And um, 18, or 1630, uh, so New England was settled around 1620 and 1630. John Clark migrated from, from London to New England and began to espouse what he saw in Scripture as far as uh, believers' baptism. Roger Williams came uh, a few years after him in 16, 1638 and established what most scholars would say is the first Baptist church who, who said, look, Presbyterian brothers and sisters, you haven't gone far enough. We see baptism for believers only. And so they begin to establish these churches that were of the Baptist tenets, meaning essentially baptism was for believers only and ultimately baptism fully by immersion, right? It would have been a lot cheaper for us just to buy a nice bowl to be able to sprinkle people Right, but we see in Scripture the the idea that this is a token and an image of being uh, uh, associating with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And we see in Scripture uh, a, a full immersion is the means in which we can uh, per, uh, speak what has happened spiritually on the inside. I'll get to that later. So uh, baptism, believers' baptism. Baptism by full immersion came around 1640. Uh, most Baptists were doing that. Baptists going down to the river, being fully baptized, um, stuff like that. And so there, then the, the Great Awakening happened, and uh, God's Spirit just moved on the American colonies, and, and, and the proclamation of the gospel was going, and many were becoming saved and, and joining and forming Baptist churches. And just like that was happening over in England, these Baptist churches were in the minority, and so they thought it was a good idea that they would associate with one another so they could, again, fulfill the Great Commission, codify their, codify their, um, their belief systems, the confessions of the faith that we see, 1644, Baptist Confession of the Faith, 1689 Baptist Confession of the Faith, codifying what, what it meant to be a Baptist and holding to the tenets, and they begin to associate with one another. And so we had several Baptist churches in the north and the south growing because they believed in the Great Commission. They read the Bible and they believed God for what he said, to go and make disciples. And it's always been in the, the heart of a Baptist to reach the lost with the gospel. And so there was great growth during the Great Awakening, a great spiritual resurgence and revival happening. And so these, the majority of the Baptist churches were in association with another. And as we, time goes on, we know the 1860s brings the Civil War, and we know the issue of what was happening in the Civil War, uh, slavery. And so just as the North and the South were divided over the opinion of slavery, so was the Baptist churches divided over their opinion with slavery. And so there was a separation of the Northern Baptists and the Southern Baptists. The Southern Baptists said uh, the Northern Baptists began to not allow people who hold sl held slaves to go on missions. And they were cooperating together in missions and stuff like that. And they're like, no more, you're a slaveholder. You, you can't do that. So they separated. And so that's the ugly part of the history, right? That we had to separate because of the, uh, the thing called slavery. And that's why there's the Northern Baptists and the Southern Baptists that has spawned out of this Protestant Reformation. And that's where we are today, but obviously we, the Southern Baptists have gone to great lengths to, to denounce their, their forefathers' beliefs on slavery time and time again and have 
concluded that they were, their forefathers were wrong and in sin for, for not supporting the anti-slavery movement. But that's where we arrive today. We're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination because of the, the church for, the forefathers and sisters who went before us and established uh, the Baptist faith and tenet in America. And again, it's this belief that Scripture says, faith alone, Christ alone, uh, through the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, all those things, but also those who hear the gospel message should join in believers' baptism, should step out in obedience to what Christ has given us in the Great Commission, and that is to become a believer, to become adopted into God's family, and to demonstrate that by being baptized. And so why do, we, why do we stand on those tenets? I just want to give you a few uh, verses from the Bible. If it's Scripture alone, this is what Baptists will look at and say, this is what we see in Scripture, why we're Baptists, why we stand for a believer's baptism and not for that baptism of babies. Acts chapter 2. So beginning of Acts, the beginning of the history of the church, the narrative of the church being established, the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, the, the apostles as Peter's proclaiming the gospel in Acts chapter 2. Thousands are saved. Just a powerful movement of God. The promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church is happening here in Acts chapter 2. Peter proclaims the message of Messiah, of Jesus. And this is the response, the reaction to those who heard this message. And to remember, we've got to keep this in context. People from all over the known world had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. So the majority of these people that are listening to Peter are Jews. They're, 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 they were walking into the gates of Jerusalem, identifying with the, the sign of the Old Testament, circumcision, and keeping the Mosaic laws that means to have a right relationship with God. And then Jesus comes and proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, we can read, you can read that oh, just amazing sermon there in Acts chapter 2. And this is the response. The Spirit convicted many, thousands, of their need to receive Jesus. And so verse 37, when they heard this, the people listening to Peter's message, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? The gospel was proclaimed. What do we need to do with it? And this is Peter's response. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he proclaims repentance. Repentance, this word means a change of mind. If you just look up at the Greek word, it says a change of mind. Here are these Jews who've gone to Jerusalem to identify with the Old Covenant, and Peter says, you need to have a change of mind. That is not the means in which God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. It is through Jesus alone. You need to have a change of mind that leads to a change in direction. No longer are you to pursue God and following the law. You're to pursue God and following Christ. Identify with him. Identify with his death, his burial, his resurrection, his vicarious work on your behalf. Repent. And be baptized. How do you identify with Jesus? Turn away from identifying with the circumcision. And turn towards Christ. And identify in baptism. Identify yourself in his death and his burial and his resurrection. 
proclaiming to the, those around you that you no longer trust in the, keeping the law. You trust in Christ's accomplished work alone, that he did it for me in his death and his burial, and he rose from the grave having victory over death. Identify not with the old covenant, but with the new. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How grateful we are to have the promise of the Spirit of God indwelling in the heart of the believer who turns, repents, believes, and trusts in Christ alone. And the promise is God has given us the Spirit of God who indwells the heart of every believer. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment of our internal, eternal inheritance that is to come. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far, far off. The call is deep. The call is wide. As many as the Lord our God will call. It's not just for the Jew, but for all that God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. Calling them to repent and believe and trust in Christ alone. That's what I try to do every Sunday. Repent, believe, and trust in Christ alone, and this eternal life can be yours as well. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayer. So they they then begin to recommit themselves to understanding revealed Scripture as through the apostles' teachings, right? Have that new perspective. Bowing the knee to Scripture and the apostles' teaching that's found in Scripture instead of what they had previously held on to. In Acts chapter 8, we see Crispus. He's the leader of the synagogue. He's the leader of the Jewish synagogue. He hears the gospel. He believed in the Lord, verse 8 says in Acts 18, along with his whole household, his whole entire household. Again, context is everything. In this time period of, 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 of the world, it was often the case that sons and daughters, even when they grew to age and became married, they would live with mom and dad. Dad would build on another house or another room to the, his house. And he would say, okay, everything's prepared, son. Go get your bride. And they would come. They would live in that house. And so Crispus believed on the Lord and along with his whole household. So we don't necessarily have to assume that there's children uh, that are not of age or young children at this point. Many of the Corinthians, when they were heard, believed and were baptized. And so we see this constant uh, theme in Scripture that the gospel is proclaimed and then you are baptized. You believe it, you receive it, and then you step out in obedience, as Christ said in the Great Commission, and be baptized. This is one of my favorite narratives found in Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch. And if anyone has read uh, the book of Isaiah, tried to read the book of Isaiah, you understand what I'm saying here. This is uh, because everyone can, can identify with the eunuch. The book of Isaiah is very hard to understand if you just open it up without any context and knowing what Isaiah is trying to do. And this Ethiopian eunuch is in a chariot, and he's trying to read the book of Isaiah. He's trying to figure it out. <clears throat> and so the Spirit tells Philip, hey, Philip, go to the chariot. Get into the chariot. I have some work for you to do, essentially. That's, that's not what the Scriptures say, but that's, that's my ad lib, right? And so Philip goes to the eunuch, and he, he, Philip says, what can I help you with? And this is the eunuch's response. I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about himself or someone else? So he's trying to figure out Isaiah. He's reading probably Isaiah 53, and he's like, is the prophet talking about himself, or is it talking about someone else? And then Philip gives him the explanation. Proceeded, Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus. 
beginning with that scripture, the entirety of scripture, old and new, points to Jesus, the promise of salvation found in him. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of Jesus. Many other prophecies found in the Old Testament prophesying of the Messiah that was to come. The good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. And so uh, he obviously believes and trusts in Christ in verse 36. And as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Right? The Ethiopian eunuch says, look, there's a body of water. I want to follow Jesus in baptism. What's preventing me, right? And they, well, they get, he gets baptized. So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. It wasn't sprinkling. He went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went away on his way rejoicing. Guess what? We're going to see the Ethiopian eunuch in heaven because he heard and received the gospel message. And he went on his way rejoicing. The jailer who was uh, watching over Paul and Silas in the jail in Acts 16. God freed, miraculously freed Paul and Silas. And the jailer was getting ready to off himself because he was so terrified of what was going to happen to him because of allowing him, these prisoners, to be escaped. And, but Paul and Silas stuck around for this jailer. Obviously, they built a relationship with this guy. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So Paul says, Don't off yourself. Let me tell you about Jesus. And so the, the, the jailer has just this encounter with Christ. And what must I do to be saved? I remember, and I hope you do too, you remember that moment when the Spirit convicted you of your need to receive Jesus, that you can't do it in your own way. You can't do it through works. You can't through it, do it for, through religion. It has to be through Christ. Okay, what must I do? We see it in Acts, right? Peter, what, what are we to do? This jailer, what must I do to be saved? The response, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. And so, um, just to be fair, this is a verse that people that would say that they see believers' baptism in Scripture, this is a, a verse that they would use because he was the one that encountered Christ in that miraculous way. But Peter's saying, or uh, Paul's saying uh, that your, your household would be saved as well. Well, that would go against the preponderance of the other evidence that says belief in Christ alone is, is the only way and the means in which we can obtain that, that grace of God through faith through all the many different scriptures. And so just to isolate this one verse would be not the wisest thing, in my opinion. And I think as you read on, the context bears out that Paul was speaking through the power of God and the fact that as the jailer went back to his house, those would, be belie- those would believe on Christ as well. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. So they went back and they proclaimed Jesus to his household. And he took the same hour of the night and washed their wounds right away. He and all his family, family were baptized. So they heard the message, they believed on Christ, they received it, and they were baptized. Believer's baptism. Ethiopian eunuch points to a full immersion baptism. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. 
that's a good w- reason to, to celebrate. Amen? To have eternal life extended to all who will believe and trust in Christ alone. And so hopefully what I've demonstrated is baptism isn't a means in which we obtain God's grace. It's by belief and trust and faith. But it is a command given to us in Scripture that we identify with the Lord in baptism. It's a token. It's a representation of what occurs when you are saved in Christ. The significance of baptism. Why should we do it? Why should we go through all the expense to build that? Why should we call people to belief and then take the time to be baptized? Because it's significant to our Lord. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist is baptizing baptisms of repentance, preparing the way of the Lord. Repentance, remember the change of mind. Hey, Jews, there's coming another way. The Messiah is coming. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Christ, the power of Christ, the gospel call is not just some thing that you just, you hear the message and you're like, okay, yeah, I'll just add them to my list. No, it is a powerful encounter with God Almighty through the power of his Holy Spirit. When he convicts you of your need to repent, change your mind, and turn to Christ alone and trust in him alone. It is a, what the, the Titus chapter 3 calls, and when Paul writes to Titus, he says, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, when he makes you a new creature in Christ. When you believe and receive, you are identified with Christ's burial, meaning your old self is dead. Your sins are dead in his death. Praise God. And three days later, he came up out of the grave, rose to eternal life, rose to a newness of life. And those who are in Christ have the promise of eternal life that is to come, a bodily resurrection. And it's through the, in, the enabling work of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so baptize, baptism that he's pointing to is a spiritual baptizing, being fully immersed in Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection. The physical baptism is only a representative, representation, representative, a representation of what occurred in the heart, being made a new creature in Christ. For just as is the body is one, he's talking about the body of Christ, the church, and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one. We're all different parts of the same body in Christ. Pointing to the union. Our union with Christ means union with God, union with one another, and that's the beautiful part about what Christ is doing in the world. Unifying a, a body, his, his church. We have Ephesians 4 and 5 on, on the wall there. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are unified in Christ. That's what he goes on in, in Romans to say here. For we were all baptized by one spirit. Spiritually baptized, fully immersed in the work of Christ into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. All who believe. It doesn't matter your economic status. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. All who believe. That's why Christ told us to go into all the world to proclaim the good news. And we all are given one spirit to drink. Praise God. Romans 6, 3-4 
Paul just gets done talking about the grace of God in Romans chapter 5 and how amazing it is. And he, he turns in chapter 6 and he says, he's going to answer those that say, oh, so what you're saying is that we just by grace are saved and has nothing to do with our own righteousness and we're just going to let God's grace just, just cover us and so we can just go on sinning like the devil. And so he answers the, the argument here. Absolutely not. <laughs> you're missing the point. It's that regeneration thing that they're missing. That God makes us to the power of the Spirit, a new creature in Christ. Absolutely not. How can we die, who died to sin still live in it? In the, because we're identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are dead to the consequences of our sin. We no longer have the curse of death hanging over us. We have eternal life given to us. But how, why on earth would we want to continue to still live in it? Those who are of the faith know that our desire, even though it's a struggle because our flesh is still fighting the, the spirit that lives within us, we desire to live a life that pleases God, not to earn his favor, but to reflect his favor and unmerited love to those around us, to reflect the, the qualities of our good and righteous Father in heaven. Verse 3, Or how are you unaware that he, that who, well, or are you unaware that who were baptized into, were baptized into death? That doesn't make any sense to me. Or, or are you unaware that who were baptized into, I, there must be something missing. Anybody have that? Huh? We're not? Okay. Or are you, are you who, Okay, thank you. Are you unaware that you who were, un- were baptized were baptized into, into death? So he's saying when you were baptized, when the Spirit saved you, you were baptized into Christ's death. Sin no longer should reign as our slave master. Christ has set us free from that. Verse 4, Therefore we were buried in him by baptism into death. What happened spiritually? In order that Jesus, as Christ, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. There we are. That's what happens spiritually. Christ has given us the ability to walk in newness of life, to be empowered by the Spirit, no longer worried about the sin debt hanging over our head because Christ has taken care of it for us. We have the opportunity to walk in newness of life and in His power for His glory for what he's done for us. And so, baptism, but going into the waters of baptism isn't a means in which we receive God's faith. It is a representation of what's happened here in Scripture. That when you hear and receive Jesus, the Spirit baptizes you, makes you fully immersed in the death, burial, and resurrection. And what you're now doing in the waters of baptism is you're identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You're proclaiming to your loved ones and to the world that you follow Christ. And that it's by his death, his burial, his resurrection to newness of life that you too are holding on to eternal life to the promises he's given us and what he's done. It's proclaiming to the world what has already happened on the inside. It's a token of what Christ has done for us. And it's important because Christ says it's important. It's so important for these forefathers and brothers and sisters who have gone before us who stood up and were severely persecuted for believing in believer's baptism. It's that important. Denny and I, probably three years ago now, we are, I think it was just Denny and I, 
Uh, we were at a, a, a meeting in town, and there was a guy that was in charge of a missions group overseas, and he had some uh, believers, uh, missionaries that were in uh, Islamic parts of the world, and um, this missionary was able to engage this Muslim gentleman who he then shared Jesus and uh, believed this Muslim gentleman uh, repented, turned from his Muslim faith and trusted in Christ alone. And the missionary was all excited and then the, the, this gentleman came to the missionary and said, I want to be baptized. And the missionary's like, I don't think that's a good idea. Because in, in where they were at, it was a sure death sentence. And the Muslim said, no, I, or the, the gentleman who came to faith said, I want to I wanna follow the Lord in baptism. And 10 days later, he was murdered for his faith. So you can't tell him or his family that baptism isn't important. It's to identify with Christ. He's commanded those who follow him to follow him in baptism as a first step of obedience. Because you're added to Christ, you're now his disciple, and he desires you to enjoy the newness of life and follow him. And the first step in that walk is being identified and declaring to the world that you now identify yourself with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that's why it's important. And so we see the Great Commission. I love this, uh, this quote from Alec Moutier. Baptism points back to the work of God, right? It's not a, an effectual work, but it points back to what Christ has done for us. But it also points forward to the life of faith. It's your first step in your walk of faith with Christ. You want to follow Jesus? You want to be his disciple? You want to enjoy newness of life? The first call for him is to be baptized. Again, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. So that's the importance of baptism. That's why we have the baptistry built. That's why we spent the money and the time to do it. And I just would urge any of you that have, who confessed Christ as their Savior, who have not stepped out in faith in the first step of obedience that he calls you to in baptism, as the Ethiopian eunuch said, here's a body of water. What does hinder you from becoming baptized and following the Lord in, 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 in obedience in that? And so if you desire to be baptized, I'd love to have that conversation with you, maybe through in our fellowship. And we're going to close now, and uh, we're going to dedicate the baptistry to the Lord's glory and for his purposes and use. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this opportunity to understand um, the importance of baptism. Lord, I pray that uh, as much as information, uh, God, that I've spewed out uh, this morning. Our Father, I pray your spirit would be able to, to work with